You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 15. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Okay, we made it through one of the two volumes of Calvin's Institute. Long section on justification. I'm sure that uh, that was a uh, that tried your perseverance. And I included uh, in the syllabus Calvin's outline in three. 11 through 19, uh, just to kind of present a, a little bit of a roadmap through those chapters. Calvin spends uh, considerable time on this doctrine and tends to repeat himself somewhat. We didn't read every single chapter, but uh, we read um, most of that section. 3, 11 through 15, and chapter 17 and chapter 19. And uh, what I want to do this morning is to talk about uh, Calvin's doctrine of justification, not really following uh, the order that Calvin uses through these chapters, but summing up his, his thoughts, since um, there is some, some repetition there. But uh, first, let's look to the Lord in prayer uh, with, again, a prayer from John Calvin. Almighty God, you set before our eyes the many evils by which we have provoked your anger against us. And yet you give us the hope of pardon if we repent. Grant us a teachable spirit that with becoming meekness we may pay attention to your warnings but not so as to despair of the mercy offered us, but seek it through your Son, as he has once for all made peace with you by shedding his blood. So cleanse us also by your Spirit from all our pollutions until at last we stand spotless before you in that day when Christ shall appear for the salvation of all his people. Amen. Remember, as we review for a moment, that in Book 3, Calvin is talking about the way in which we receive the grace of Christ, what benefits come to us from it, and what effects follow. began with a chapter on the Holy Spirit, who is the bond between Christ and us. Spirit is the way, and the principal work of the Spirit is faith. And then Calvin says, I must choose between two points that equally demand attention at this place in my treatment in the Institutes. One is justification, and the other is sanctification. And then surprisingly, uh, Calvin chooses to put sanctification first for reasons that we looked at, probably because of Roman Catholic objections to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, 
uh, Calvin wants to emphasize the importance of, the necessity of, the certainty of good works in the justified person uh, before he comes as such to the doctrine of justification. He explained that back in 331 when he said our immediate transition will be from faith to repentance or sanctification. For when this topic is rightly understood, it will better appear how man is justified by faith alone. So having spent time on repentance, the race of repentance, sanctification, the Christian life, Calvin now comes to ask the question, what produced this kind of life? How can it be that a person can live this way? And the answer is God alone can do the work which enables a person to become a Christian and then live the Christian life. And God does it by justifying us by faith alone. So, we come finally to justification in Calvin, and certainly the the length of the treatment shows something of Calvin's um, concern to emphasize this uh, doctrine. He doesn't want us to think that because he's postponed it a bit, it's not central, it's not urgent, it's not foundational. In fact, Calvin calls it you recall in 311.1, the main hinge on which religion turns. You could translate that, the main thing about religion. But Calvin's image is an interesting one. The main hinge on which religion turns. That's 311.1. says the same thing in 314.11. The principal hinge on which our controversy with the papist turns. You might wonder why Calvin is using that particular metaphor. And I think the answer to that is Luther used that in his uh, Bondage of the Will, uh, written against uh, Erasmus's on the freedom of the will. Luther said, you, speaking to Erasmus, saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned. And therefore, you attack the vital part at once. And Luther goes on to say, I thank you for that because you have really focused on on the main topic rather than indulgence is purgatory, um, the corruptions in the Catholic uh, Church, which are minor topics, Luther says, compared to this main topic, which is how a person is saved. So... Calvin picks up on that uh, language and uses it um, in the Institutes. Some have wanted to see Calvin's treatment of justification as somewhat second-handed and uh, maybe not really vital to his own construction of his theological system. In fact, Alistair McGrath um, makes that point, but it seems to me it's, it's quite uh, mistaken. I think uh, what we have here is Calvin stressing this doctrine in a, in a very unambiguous way. Now, certainly, in one sense, it's second-handed. He's, he's inherited it mostly from Luther, but that 
that doesn't have to mean that it's uh, secondary. Uh, just because Luther has come first with it, uh, Calvin uh, comes along and emphasizes it just as, as much as, as Luther does. In fact, T.H.L. Parker, in his um, book on Calvin, An Introduction to His Thoughts, said, Justification is something Calvin has been working up to all through the Institutes. And I think that's much closer to an accurate assessment of the place of this doctrine in Calvin than um, Alistair McGrath's uh, comment. So we have uh, significant uh, treatment, uh, nine chapters, more space given to justification by faith in the first three books than um, any other topic except for uh, the doctrine of the Christian life. Actually, if you look at all four books and just think of space, it's not the most um, determinative um, factor in assessing the importance of what is being treated, but it certainly is uh, significant. The doctrine of the church gets more pages than any other doctrine, but uh, the doctrine of justification is significantly uh, treated. In fact, um, Calvin seems to feel, as he says in 3.14.6, that maybe he's overdoing it in terms of going back over uh, these points uh, again and again. Uh, Calvin says, the thought repeatedly returns to my mind that there is a danger of my being unjust to God's mercy when I labor with such great concern to assert it as if it were doubtful or obscure. So he doesn't want us to think because he's emphasizing it, saying the same thing over and over again, repeating himself, uh, that he's trying to make a point that is somehow not certain. Calvin's attention to the doctrine and his uh, repetition is not because the doctrine is uncertain, but because it's so important and because it was so um, controverted. Calvin is going to, to treat doctrines that are controversial much more than he will treat doctrines that in the 16th century were not controversial. So we don't get huge amount of attention to the doctrine of the Trinity, not because that was not considered essential, but because... Everybody was accepting that, almost everybody. But uh, this doctrine of justification uh, is one that uh, was controversial, and so Calvin um, spends uh, considerable time with it. Okay, that's the importance of the doctrine. Come now to talk about the relation of justification by faith to sanctification. Calvin sees both as, as the gifts of God, sanctification and justification. Justification frees us from the necessity of obeying the law for salvation. It doesn't free us from the necessity of obeying the law, 
but it frees us from the necessity of obeying the law for salvation, which we can't do anyway. So it's our only hope. And then sanctification, regeneration, newness of life enables us to obey the law as justified people. So these two topics are very closely linked in Calvin's thought. They're both gifts of God, gifts of the gospel. They can't uh, be separated. Justification is the source of sanctification. Without justification, one has neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety toward God. He's been talking about piety toward God for quite a few chapters, but in 3.11.1, when he comes uh, to begin his discussion of justification, he says, now we come to the foundation of all that. Without this foundation, there's no way that we could build piety uh, toward God, or there's no basis on which we can establish our salvation. So, two different things can't be separated. You can't really have justification without sanctification. You can't have sanctification without justification. But at the same time, Calvin is very concerned that they could not and should not be confused or confounded. You can talk about justification. You can talk about sanctification. You should not separate them. And we've seen in the very way that he tries to handle these two how he doesn't want to, in any sense, separate the two. But at the same time, it's essential not to confuse them. And uh, Calvin felt that the, the heresies of his day were caused by a confusion of sanctification with justification. He has uh, two targets here, two opponents. Uh, one is a Lutheran theologian by the name of Ossiander, and the other is uh, the Roman Catholic theologians. He opposes them both, and he thinks they both make the same mistake in the long run, although they come at it from quite different uh, angles. Let's take Ossiander First, Calvin doesn't have much respect for Osiander. He attacks him on a number of occasions. And Osiander was not a, a great theologian. In fact, we would probably not, not even know much about Osiander if Calvin had not spent so much time attacking Osiander. Now, the Lutherans didn't, for the most part, care for Osiander either. So when Calvin attacks Osiander. He's not attacking Lutheranism. He's attacking a Lutheran theologian who had some heretical views, according to Calvin, and according to most of the Lutherans. What uh, Calvin describes uh, as Osiander's doctrine is some strange monster of essential righteousness. That is his discussion of Osiander, the introduction to it. 
And what so upsets Calvin about Osiander is that Osiander believed in, in justification, but he rejected the undiluted imputation concept. In other words, Osiander said a person cannot be justified just because God says that person is justified without some kind of change happening within that person. God cannot regard as just those who are not just. If God simply says about the sinner, he's justified, she's justified, uh, that's um, improper and impossible. There has to be something that happens within the sinner that enables God to speak of that sinner as justified. Calvin said that some strange monster of essential righteousness because Osiander felt that we become just not because God says we're just but by the fact of Christ indwelling in us so justification is not just a forensic act it's not a declaration it's the actual coming of Christ to indwell within us and so we're made righteous by the infusion of Christ, the essence of Christ uh, within us, and God can look upon us then as justified because we really are now, to some extent, righteous and just people. Well, Luther would not have agreed with that, would he? And certainly Calvin doesn't uh, either. Calvin says, we who are not righteous in ourselves are reckoned as such in Christ. To him, justification is not that we are indwelt by Christ and so are justified on that basis. But we're not righteous in ourselves, but we are reckoned as righteous in Christ. I think Calvin's objection to Osiander is that he mixes sanctification and justification. Certainly, the indwelling of Christ is an important doctrine for Calvin. But our union with Christ, which produces the righteousness which we experience as Christians, is sanctification, it's not justification. So, Osiander's view is justification by sanctification, whereas Calvin's view is justification by faith alone and then sanctification as the result of our justification. So, our righteousness, Calvin insists, is always, in terms of our justification, our righteousness is always outside ourselves. It's something God does for us, imputes to us, gives us credit for it, reckons us as righteous, but we're not righteous although we become righteous then as a result of the justification which is given to us outside of anything that we do or anything that happens within us. It's the same thing as Luther talks about when he talks about alien righteousness. Righteousness that we have which justifies us is always alien. 
belongs to somebody else. You know, it's not ours. And of course, it is the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to us. So, one of the targets of Calvin is Asiander. And then the other target, and far more significant target, is the whole Roman Catholic sacramental system built up uh, during the Middle Ages in which the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification was one that mixed God's grace with human works. It's another form of, of justification by sanctification. So even though Asiander and the Roman Catholics are quite different in their approach to this doctrine, it ends up, Calvin thinks, the same place. When he's talking about the Catholics, he says this, they interpret the grace of God not as the imputation of free righteousness, Calvin's view, the imputation of free righteousness, but as the Spirit helping in the pursuit of holiness. So, grace of God is there, but justification is not God simply declaring the sinner justified on the basis of the work of Christ, but God applying the work of Christ to the sinner, enabling then the sinner to begin to do his or her part in the work of salvation. Calvin, uh, throughout these chapters, is is concerned uh, to show that he is following St. Augustine in many things, most things. And when we come to the doctrine of election, of which we will quite soon now, Calvin is greatly concerned to show that he is following Augustine in that doctrine as well. But uh, in this treatment of the Catholic view of justification, Calvin says, or when Augustine says anything clearly, Lombard obscures it. Lombard is Peter Lombard, the author of the sentences, called the master of the sentences. He's probably, he is the premier Catholic medieval theologian prior to uh, Thomas Aquinas. So, Lombard's sentences would be the standard Catholic systematic theology of the Middle Ages. And what Lombard does is, is largely look for sources, quote, church fathers and earlier medieval theologians, and create his theology on the basis of what others have said. But Augustine is often quoted in Lombard. But Calvin says, when Augustine says anything clearly, Lombard obscures it. And if there was anything slightly contaminated in Augustine, Calvin finds an occasional little problem in Augustine. Lombard totally corrupts it. So Lombard is not his his favorite theologian uh, by uh, any means. And Lombard and uh, the others uh, that um, stand for Roman Catholic theology 
are subjects then to Calvin's Antiochia. Yes, could you real quickly go over the differences between Calvin and Augustine on this? Uh, there's, well, let me, let me put it in, in two ways just uh, briefly. Augustine will talk about salvation by, by grace alone. And that's the whole theme of his anti-Pelagian writings. It's not by works, it's by God's grace. But the, the Reformation formula of justification by grace through faith is not present in Augustine. The through faith aspect is not present in Augustine as it is in Luther. Faith alone. Luther says, I agree with Augustine, it's by grace alone, but we need to say by faith alone, too. And there's much more emphasis then in the Reformation and in Calvin on faith alone. There's a big discussion about that, but uh, I don't see a huge problem there. You know, when you say by grace alone, and the Reformers said by faith alone, they simply mean you can't add anything to God's grace. That's what faith alone means. But uh, that emphasis is not found in Augustine as it uh, is in Calvin. The other issue, the other point of difference, and there are some tiny points of difference too on small matters of interpretation, but the other major point is that Calvin clearly, as we'll see, holds to a double predestination. And it's debated as to whether Augustine does or not. Could you call Augustine a single predestinarian and Calvin a double predestinarian? And what does Augustine say about reprobation? What does Calvin say about reprobation? So I'd say on those two points you have the major differences. If uh, the Catholic view of justification that Calvin's dealing with mm-hmm. is one where someone is infused mm-hmm. with righteousness by grace, mm-hmm. um, how does that differ from Augustine's view? Calvin, how does the, the Catholic view differ from Augustine's view? If Augustine says grace alone, then the, Calvin, the Catholics say grace alone meaning infusion rather than infusion. Okay, Augustine's view is, is grace alone apart from works. The Catholic view is semi-Augustinian. Yes, grace, but Works have to be added, however works come. You could talk about works as the, the result of uh, infusion of Christ's righteousness or the enablement of the Spirit or the obedience of, of the Christian. But justification ultimately depends on some human works, whereas for Augustine, justification doesn't depend on human works but on God's grace alone. If we have time, at the end of the lecture, we'll look at uh, the Catholic system of salvation versus Calvin's system of salvation. And you'll see uh, with that, it's uh, outlined in the syllabus at the end of this lecture, that a person gets to heaven, that person gets there both because of reward and human accomplishment. Whereas in Calvin's understanding of heaven, it's just as much a gift as justification is. We get to heaven because of God's grace, not because of our efforts. Now, of course, that raises the issue which the Catholics would very quickly 
well, does it then not matter what we do? And I think we have to go back uh, to the fact that Calvin has already spent considerable time emphasizing the necessity of the Christian life as the product of justification before he even comes to justification as the basis for Christian life. Okay, let's look at his uh, definitions, Calvin's definitions. Usually he gives us a, a definition. He likes definitions, likes to be clear, set forth uh, his thought in a, a brief uh, phrase or sentence or paragraph. But he gives us um, three definitions, at least, of justification. They're not uh, contradictory, but each one is slightly different. 3.11.2, it's the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous. Acceptance is the big word there. Receives us into his favor as righteous, as though we were righteous. It consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Forgiven, we receive the righteousness of Christ. 3.11.3, to justify means nothing else than to acquit of guilt him who was accused as if his innocence were confirmed. In 3.17.8, we define justification as follows. The sinner received into communion with Christ is reckoned by God, to God, is reconciled to God by his grace, while cleansed by Christ's blood, he obtains forgiveness of sins and clothed with Christ's righteousness as if it were his own. He stands confident before the heavenly judgment seat. When we look at uh, those definitions, I think two ideas keep coming through. One is the idea of imputed righteousness. Believers are righteous, not in themselves, but through the righteousness of Christ. It's not imparted righteousness like we find in Osiander, but it's imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is, is reckoned as ours. Three eleven twenty three. you see that our righteousness is not in us, but in Christ. So as we talk about justification, we have to talk about righteousness, but it's not ours. It's in Christ. One of Calvin's illustrations here is uh, Jacob in his brother's clothing. And he comes before the father. And the father recognizes him as someone that he is not. That's kind of a convoluted illustration. You might not really think of using it because um, of all the background of that illustration. And I'm not sure I would want to use it in a sermon either. But uh, Calvin's uh, point is, is clear Jacob stands there, and the father says, you're Esau. And uh, we stand there in somebody else's clothing, and the father says, I see you as righteous. So 
imputed righteousness is essential. And then forgiveness of sins. So it's not only that God sees us as righteous because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but God sees us as being forgiven of our sins. 3.11.21, the righteousness of faith is reconciliation with God, which consists in the forgiveness of sins. So, sins forgiven and the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now, it's not really two different things because forgiveness of sins is based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but it's two ways to look at what transpires in justification. Sins forgiven and we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. See, I suppose we could think of sins forgiven and then we could we could stand there in ourselves, but that would be a pretty pitiful situation because we're still sinners, despite the fact that we've been justified. So our sins, the guilt of our sins are forgiven. The guilt is forgiven. And we stand in the presence of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When Calvin is writing about the canons of Trent, the, the Council of Trent was going on through a good portion of Calvin's um, lifetime as a reformer in Geneva. So he's aware of these uh, rules that are being drawn up by the Roman Catholics in Trent in Italy. And Calvin was uh, also writing uh, about what Trent was producing in order to uh, answer uh, Trent's um, doctrines and Trent's attacks on Protestant doctrine. And Calvin says this about Trent, the venerable fathers, kind of interesting there, he uses a rather pleasant description of his enemies. He doesn't always do that, but uh, the venerable fathers, he calls them. Maybe that's irony or sarcasm, but... uh, Nonetheless, it uh, sounds better than those scoundrels or those dogs or something else, which Calvin often says about his enemies, theological enemies. The venerable fathers will not allow justifying faith to be defined as the confidence with which we embrace the mercy of God as forgiving sin for Christ's sake. When you think about um, these two ideas, imputed righteousness, imputation, and forgiveness of sins, as I say, two ways of looking at the same thing. They're not contradictory. They are complementary. Sometimes people seem to be uneasy with the idea of imputation. That's forensic. That's... uh, Legal, that's a kind of intellectualism. And forgiveness is something that is warm and personal. And start talking about adoption, 
things like that. But I don't think we should see it uh, that way. Certainly, imputation for Calvin was not some kind of abstraction, and forgiveness the a real justification. But um, apart from imputation, uh, forgiveness would have been unintelligible to Calvin, because God doesn't and really can't just forgive because He wants to forgive. He has to have a way to forgive, a basis on which to forgive. And unless the righteousness of Christ can somehow be reckoned to my account, then what other basis is there uh, for the forgiveness of my sins? God just can't say, you're forgiven, because God's holiness and justice, which have to be satisfied in some way for God to be God. So imputation is not an abstraction. It's not some kind of cold intellectualism. But I think we can embrace imputation as, as warmly uh, as we can embrace um, forgiveness. Okay, let's look at uh, the results of the doctrine of justification uh, by faith. Remember, this third book, Calvin is talking about the way in which we receive the grace of Christ. Benefits that come to us from it. We've just been talking about those benefits. Imputation. Righteousness of Christ imputed to us and forgiveness of sins. And what effects follow. Some effects will follow. And I think Calvin means by that things will be present in our lives, be seen in our lives, the effects of justification, as well as the effects of repentance, which we looked at uh, earlier, practical application of that in the golden booklet of the Christian life, self-denial, bearing the cross, meditation on heaven, uses of this present life. Those are all effects which show up in our lives as a result of God's work of repentance or regeneration or sanctification. And when we come to justification, there are effects as well. This is not merely a kind of legal exercise. It doesn't have any, any practical implications. But justification has practical implications as well as sanctification. And two mainly. One, justification by faith alone serves God's honor. This enables us to honor God, this doctrine. Enables us to honor God in the way we think and in the way we live, so that his glory stands undiminished. Three, thirteen, two. Man cannot, without sacrilege, claim for himself even a crumb of righteousness. For just so much is plucked and taken away 
from the glory of God's righteousness. In other words, when you talk about salvation, if you even take a little bit away, just a crumb of righteousness that you claim for yourself, then you've diminished by that much the glory of God's righteousness. When I think about the the Roman Catholic medieval system, I usually call that percentage theology. As I do in the church history classes. Because what it means, and Catholic theologians differed on exactly how this would work, but what it means is that God does his part and you do your part. And God, let's say, does 90% and you do 10% percentage theology and God uh, if he does his part and you don't do your part you're not going to be saved or let's say God does 99% and you do 1% it's still percentage theology and uh, Calvin says it doesn't matter how small the percentage is that you do if there's anything there a crumb of righteousness then by that much it's going to diminish uh, the glory of God's righteousness. So the doctrine of justification by by faith alone um, is the only teaching that can fully honor God and his glory stands undiminished. I was at the uh, St. Louis Zoo some years ago and looking at uh, a kind of, some kind of strange uh, breed of, uh, of cattle. I don't remember what these things were called, but uh, they, they were, you could tell they were some kind of breed of cattle, but uh, different and big. And uh, while I was standing there looking at these things, a little two little boys came running by and they wanted to see what they could at the zoo, and they took one look at this thing. And uh, one little boy said to the other one, Come on, it ain't nothing but a big cow. And uh, it did look kind of like a big cow, but uh, it was an unusual big cow. But my, the reason I thought of that is, you know, whatever you, you call a system in which there is some percentage of human effort required for salvation, uh, it's, it ain't nothing but salvation by works. You see. So, justification by faith alone serves God's honor. His glory stands undiminished. We cannot take credit for our salvation, even a little part of our salvation, and at the same time, Uh, give all the glory to God. You see the prayer, thank you, Lord, for helping me to become a Christian. It's not the same thing as thank you, Lord, for saving me. And that's the prayer we would pray if we're true to Calvin's teaching and I think true to the Bible. The other effect which follows is that this doctrine gives us peace of conscience. And you can't really imagine how lacking that was in the 16th century unless you've studied quite a bit of the writings of the people of that time. 
no assurance, no confidence. Nobody ever knew where they stood unless they received some kind of direct revelation from God saying, you are a Christian, you are saved. And that did not happen very often, even according to Catholic sources. Salvation is a gift of God, and because it's a gift of God, then there is the basis for confidence, assurance. Calvin says, we profit nothing in discussing righteousness unless we establish a righteousness so steadfast that it can support our soul in the judgment of God. 3.13.3 And what can support our soul in the judgment of God? You see, if we, we stand before God now or ultimately at the judgment, what's going to give us confidence? The fact that we did some things? Well, I expect that it's not strong enough. Certainly people in the 16th century found it lacking. We'll always doubt then the validity of our works or the strength of our works. And if salvation is a work, uh, even partially a work, even to a very small degree a work that is required of us, how can I know that I've done that work? How can I know that I've, I've measured up? You know, that was Luther's problem in the monastery where he went into the monastery in order to do more than he could do as an ordinary Christian. And then in the monastery, he did more than he was required to do as a monk. So that he said, if ever a monk could get to heaven by his monkery, it was me. Because whatever was required by the order, Luther did more. And he was supposed to confess. And so he did confess. But even at the very first step of confession, which is contrition. Confession is not going to be valid unless there's contrition. That is, to feel genuinely sorry for your sins. 16th century person could not confess sins that he wasn't sorry for. But Luther stumbled even at that point because how could he know that he was really contrite? How much contrition was required? And he struggled with that. And then he confessed and he confessed and he fasted until he wore his confessor out and you might remember the story the man said well go and do something really bad and come and confess it because Luther would confess every little trivial thing and then would leave and come back and knock on the door and say I've forgotten something I, it was a thought that I had or there was something that uh, he had forgotten because Luther was trying uh, to, to make the system work you see and certainly zealous in attempting uh, to cover all of the bases, but he never could have any confidence because he didn't know if he'd done enough. But if salvation is a gift, a gift from God, uh, then you don't have to worry about that because we know that God has done enough and that uh, we can stand confident in his presence. I don't have to 
to earn it, don't have to deserve it, just receive it. And I know that God's gift is then enough. Okay, we're ready to go on to Christian freedom. This is a very interesting chapter, 319, and this material in 319 was already present in 1536. Some of this Calvin takes from Luther, some from Melanchthon. Melanchthon has similar material. Uh, in his Loci Communis of 1521. But, uh, as always, Calvin adds his own particular slant on things. And this material has moved around some through the various editions of the Institutes, but in 1559, it's placed um, at the end of his treatment of justification as what he calls an appendage of justification. What does he mean by that? Well, I think Calvin means by that, now that we've understood justification, we have to talk about Christian freedom because this is going to protect us against falling back into works righteousness in some way. going to keep us from legalism and doubt. One writer has said this, and I think it's really so true. How many words about Calvin's legalism would have remained unspoken if this chapter had been read more often? If Calvin is criticized for anything, he's probably going to be criticized. Well, for burning Servetus, having a part in that at least approving of it, but also for legalism. And uh, sometimes uh, you wonder if if people who make those uh, claims have read the Institutes. They certainly have not read 319. So let's look at uh, what Calvin says here. Um, Legalism doesn't understand uh, the power of justification. Now, here's a point that I've made uh, already, but uh, let me make it again. Both repentance or regeneration or sanctification or whatever synonym you want to use there and justification have implications for how a person lives. The fact that we are accounted just before God is no less significant for practical life than the fact that we're united to Christ in mortification and vivification. So, the fact that we're united to Christ in mortification and vivification leads, Calvin says, to the life of the Christian. And he gives us those chapters at the end of his treatment of sanctification on how a Christian lives. And the fact that we are reckoned righteous 
with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and our sins forgiven, that has practical implications, too, for how a Christian lives. Calvin sets that forth in 319 on Christian freedom. So you might say 319 is there uh, to answer this question, what difference does this doctrine make in the nature of the Christian life? And Calvin tells us that it makes a difference in three great ways. First is we're free from the law. There's no place for the law, 319.2. But, of course, you have to understand what Calvin means by that, and I think you do by this time having read all these uh, hundreds of pages in the institutes. It means we're free from the law as a means of salvation. We're free from salvation by works. And so we're not, quote, disturbed and troubled over forgiveness of sins. That's a wonderful freedom. We know we have been forgiven. Our confidence is sure. We can forget the the righteousness of the law, and we can look uh, to the grace of God. Now, his first point here is classic Reformation teaching of salvation by grace alone. That's what he's been saying for all these pages, and now he says Christian freedom is freedom from falling back into any kind of old works righteousness where it depends on us and not on God's grace. This, of course, is not a denial of the third use of the law for the Christian. But the third use of the law doesn't deny first use of the law. First use of the law says, I'm a sinner, I can't keep the law, I'm doomed unless God does something for me. The third use of the law says, I will keep the law. I must keep the law because it's God's holy intention for my life. So this is not a denial of the third use. Calvin says the law does not stop teaching and exhorting and urging believers to good, even though before God's judgment seat, it has no place in their consciences, 319.2. We stand before the judgment seat. The law just doesn't come in. We don't even think about it. We can forget it. But that doesn't mean in terms of our Christian living, we can forget the law. Okay, that's the first use of Christian freedom. The second use is somewhat related We are free now to freely obey God. We have the freedom of children to freely obey God's will. It's not the the necessity now of a servant who knows he's not going to measure up and is going to fall short and be condemned. But it's the freedom of children to happily, freely 
obey the Lord. Obedience is not a requirement for sonship. It's the result of sonship. It's not that I must obey the law so that God will love me, but it is I want to obey the law. I will obey the law because God loves me. Not so that God will love me. It's because God loves me. And Calvin says, what a wonderful freedom that is because now we can bring our works, small, imperfect, rude, to God and we can know that this is not going to be measured by the rigor of the law's demands. You know, these works we do, keeping the law, you might say it's down here on this level, the law is way up there. What a gulf there is between what the law requires and what even the best of us ever accomplishes. But we don't have to come into God's presence then with terror, thinking God is requiring that and we're only producing this. And so we're in big trouble because we come uh, in the presence of a gracious father. This morning as I go over to the hospital for treatment um, and one of the doctors that I see has uh, on the wall of his office, very nice office, important looking medical books there, but he has some incredibly pictures that uh, he has all over this office and they're done in crayon and uh, who knows what they stand for maybe a tree maybe a bird but it doesn't look like a tree and doesn't look like a bird but uh, he's got these uh, proudly um, plastered uh, on the wall of his office and uh, the reason of course is because his children did them. The bottom you can see, with love to daddy, something like that, from all of these uh, works of art. So you might say, pretty poor stuff, but treasured, displayed, and accepted. Sure, that uh, doctor did not criticize his children because they were not Rembrandts, but uh, he accepted the pictures because of what uh, they stood for. And so, in a sense, you know, we're like that. We come into God's presence with our imperfect efforts and our pretty uh, juvenile drawings, and God uh, accepts what we bring, doesn't find fault with it. Well, that's the second freedom. That's an incredible freedom. And then the third freedom is freedom in the indifferent things, the adiaphora. It's the Greek word that we use for that. Calvin uses that word occasionally, but not much. But the idea is certainly present here in Calvin. He says, as we live the Christian life, there are many things which are indifferent, adiaphora, not specifically covered by the law. And the Christian is free in all those things. 
There's no, there's no legalism in Calvin here, despite what people think. We cannot make, the church cannot make, nobody can make an 11th commandment, the Ten Commandments. God's law is God's law, and we should not add to the law. The different expressions of Christianity, of course, have done a lot of this. What we sometimes call fundamentalism tends to add to the law. You shall not uh, go to movies. You shall not dance. You shall not play cards. You shall not, um, what else, drink alcoholic beverages. And uh, I grew up in that tradition, and there's some very good things about it, but all those laws were there, all those restrictions were there, and we were made to feel that this was part of the law of God, just like the Ten Commandments. But Calvin says, things that the Bible doesn't cover are indifferent, and the Christian is free in regard to all those things, guided by two principles. He's not just telling us, just go out and do what you want to now in these areas. You're free in these areas. Don't add to the law. You're free, but there are two principles that you ought to keep in mind. The first is moderation. Calvin says, as we think about uh, the indifferent things, we should avoid both aestheticism and indulgence. On the one hand, aestheticism entraps the conscience in a long and inextricable maze. You can get really trapped in this by being too strict. Remember his uh, illustration here. Uh, People think maybe they should not drink good wine, so they drink kind of mediocre wine, and then they think they should not even drink mediocre wine, so they drink poor wine, and then they think they should not drink wine at all, so they drink water, and they think they should not drink clean water, so they drink dirty water. I mean, it gets uh, kind of an argument, uh, reductio ad absurdum. And Calvin says, don't go that way. Don't get caught in that kind of uh, rigid, uh, narrow uh, outlook on life. Recognize that God has given us good gifts, and we should use those gifts uh, for the purpose for which he gave them to us. And you might notice how this begins to overlap something that we have read in the life of the Christian. So both um, Christian freedom coming out of justification and appendage to justification and the life of the Christian flowing out of repentance can return uh, to the same ideas. So avoid aestheticism and, on the other hand, avoid indulgence. So slippery path here, a narrow path, and we can go off on the too strict side, and we can go off on the too loose side. We should live, not luxuriate. It's Cowan's word for us.
Now, maybe as seminary students, you think you're in good shape here because probably not many of you are luxuriating. <laughs> so live, but don't luxuriate. Here's how Calvin puts it in uh, 319.9. Surely ivory and gold and riches, are those things good or bad? He says they're, they're good creations of God, permitted, indeed appointed, for men's use by God's providence. And we've never been forbidden to laugh or to be filled or to join new possessions to old or ancestral ones or to delight in musical harmony or to drink wine. True indeed. But where there is plenty to wallow in delights, to gorge oneself, to intoxicate mind and heart with present pleasures and be always panting after new ones, such are very far removed from a lawful use of God's gifts. Gifts are there. We can use them as God intended us, avoiding asceticism and avoiding indulgence. And then the other principle which should guide us in our Christian freedom is compassion. Christian freedom consists as much in abstaining as in using. It seems to me that's a very important part of what Calvin wants to get across to us. That's 3.19.10. Christian freedom consists as much in abstaining as in using. In other words, I exercise my Christian freedom when I am free to use these gifts that God has given to us in these indifferent areas, which is much of life. But I'm still using, I'm equally using my Christian freedom when I don't use these gifts. So you might say, you can use your Christian freedom in drinking wine, and you can use your Christian freedom in not drinking wine. Now, why would, we, why would we want to abstain? We must not abuse our Christian freedom, but use it only if it helps the edification of our neighbor. So, here's another principle that is brought in. We're free, yes, and in different things. But uh, we should always be aware of uh, who's with us, our neighbor other people. And that idea is advanced then uh, with, with two further ideas. And in the syllabus it says, we must distinguish between the ignorance of our weak brothers and the rigor of the Pharisees. So when you start thinking about neighbor, you've got two categories. Uh, you've got um, weak uh, brothers, and you have Pharisees. And where you have a weak brother, and you must know the difference between a weak brother and a Pharisee, Calvin says, where you have a weak brother, then you don't use your Christian freedom because that person would be caused to stumble. Where you have a Pharisee, you don't have to abstain 
me give you Calvin's illustration here. You know, Paul circumcised, had Timothy circumcised, but uh, he did not have Titus circumcised. So there seems to be some kind of uh, inconsistency there where he would insist on the circumcision of one of his associates, not that not on the other. He said, Calvin says that Paul had Timothy circumcised because Paul restricted his freedom. Paul would not have had Timothy circumcised. It's no longer a requirement in the Christian era. But Paul restricts his freedom because it was, it was fruitful to do so. There were people that would have been hurt, offended, would not have understood. And so Paul thinks it's, it's right to take into consideration the weaker brother. But Paul asserted uh, his freedom in the right of Titus because of the unjust demands of false apostles. See, one issue concerned weaker brothers. The other issue concerned Pharisees. And here were Jews saying circumcision is required for keeping the law and for salvation. Paul says, no, it's not. Titus is not going to be circumcised. So the rigor of the Pharisees is something that uh, should not cause us to forsake our Christian freedom in order to satisfy Pharisees or hypocrites or whatever term you want to put there. But there are weaker brothers too. And you know, may God give us the wisdom to discern when we're dealing with weaker brothers and when we're dealing with Pharisees. And Calvin's last point here under compassion he discusses um, the indifferent things is that remember in trying to avoid giving offense to people be sure you don't offend God we must not offend God in trying to avoid offending our neighbor there's sometimes when we can go too far and we don't want to offend our neighbor and we end up offending God. Calvin's um, illustration here uh, is uh, the Mass. To Calvin, it was wrong for a person who had embraced the Protestant teaching to continue uh, to go uh, to the Mass and participate in the Mass. Uh, some people were doing it, Calvin called them Nicodemites, like Nicodemus, kind of secretly doing it, going by night, as Nicodemus did. And uh, they were doing it because they said, uh, we don't want to offend neighbors, and we don't want to be too harsh here. And after all, people must, must first be fed with milk before they can grow to the place where they need meat 
So here are these Protestants, secret Protestants, going to the Mass and people saying, yes, that's right and that's good because you have to have milk before you have meat. Calvin's answer is, milk is not poison. And to him, the Mass was poison. And so don't be too gentle with people when there's an issue like this involved where uh, you're going to offend God. Well, I did not uh, get to uh, the Roman Catholic system of salvation compared with Calvin's doctrine of justification by faith alone, but you can look at uh, the outline there and um, see the Roman Catholic system of faith and works and then Calvin's order of justification with the various references in the Institutes. Uh, Next time, we have a very wonderful section, Calvin on Prayer. It's a long chapter, but just one chapter, chapter 20. So let's uh, read that with um, care and discernment, and we'll talk about uh, prayer next time. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.